Hey, everybody, welcome into the podcast. We just want to take a second here at the top of the episode to talk to you about one of our favorite listening apps, Radio Public. Radio Public is a podcast listening app that's free for you and earns your favorite podcasters money for their work. Radio Public is available anywhere in the world. It's 100% free, no hidden charges, no subscriptions. It's easy to use, and it works on your Apple or Android device. And if you're currently using a different app to listen to your podcast, you can easily import all your subscriptions into Radio Public. The app is great. It's easy to use. It doesn't require a login, so you can start listening right away, and your privacy will always be respected. And the bonus for us is that if you listen on Radio Public, they will pay podcasters. That's right. For each new listener to our podcast that listens to three episodes, we'll get what's called a loyal listener bonus. So if you want to give back to Film and Whiskey and you listen on the regular, this is the way to do it. Look, we know you might be listening right now to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and that is okay. But do us a solid. Press stop, go download Radio Public, and listen to us there. We will be there waiting for you. So, listen to Film and Whiskey on Radio Public. It's free, easy to use, and it helps listeners like you find and support shows like ours. When you listen to Film and Whiskey on Radio Public, everyone benefits. And now, let's get to the show. In 1963, director John Sturgis and star Steve McQueen tunneled their way into our hearts with an action-adventure drama for the ages. In 2019, we get a Highland single malt scotch whiskey aged in sherry casks. The film is The Great Escape. The whiskey is Glenmorangie La Santa. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. the film and whiskey podcast where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey i'm bob book i'm brad g and this week we are looking at the 1963 film the great escape now brad this is one of if not the most famous world war ii movies ever it's a true classic it is and the funny thing is it's not really a war movie i mean it's a prisoner of war movie well they say at the very start if you guys chill out we'll chill out we're just gonna sit out the war together And when you say they, you're talking about like the Nazis, the people that run the prisoner of war camp where this movie is set. Yeah, you're you're removed from action throughout the whole movie. But, you know, and by action, we mean battle sequences. It's literally this film is just about a prisoner of war camp for officers in the British, Scottish, Australian, you know, in the allied countries. Right. That's run by the Nazis and their attempts to get out. Yeah. You're not going to be watching Saving Private Ryan. No, not or, at all. Or uh, what was the one that just came out? Uh, Dunkirk. Dunkirk or the one where the dude won't fight and he saves everybody. He's a medic. Oh, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, you're not going to get a Hacksaw Ridge no. movie. And actually, like, I kind of struggle a little bit with the fact that this is a war movie. Right. But that it's so fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's an adventure movie, I would yeah. call it, more than anything else. But if you haven't seen the movie, I think we should do... Brad explains the movie. Brad explains the great escape. Yeah, so we pretty much have explained it. It's a group of allied POWs, uh, prisoners of war, in a Nazi POW camp, and they're trying to escape. Yeah. And they dig tunnels. Exactly. Now, this movie was based on a true story. Right. Where there really was an escape, uh, and I think the actual number still was 76 people got yeah. out of the prisoner of war camp. I actually really loved the opening, The in the opening scene, they give the little bit of text explaining how this is a true story, mm-hmm. right? And this is the first one that I've ever seen that was, like, truly honest, where it said, like, this story that you're about to see is a composite of a bunch of different men, and, like, it. they basically said, like, we this is here to entertain you. Yeah. But it's made up of a lot of true stories, right. and we couldn't tell all of them. It almost gave the sense of, like, we're not even getting the full picture, and it's still a three-hour <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why, but I really loved that intro, intro script. Yeah, I did, too. And when you look at what actually happened with the real story, uh, I guess there were no Americans involved. There weren't any Americans at this POW camp, or at least none escaped. Mm -hmm. So 76 men got out of this concentration, not even concentration, uh, the prisoner of war camp. Yeah. They escaped. Most of them were rounded back up. Adolf Hitler personally ordered the execution of 50 of them to make a point. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is really rooted in some some sad kind of tragic history. But if you read up on the history of what happened at this prisoner of war camp, part of it was that they wanted to escape. Part of it was that they knew that because they were ranking officers right. in their own armies and, you know, air forces and things like that, that if they did escape, they would be diverting so much attention to rounding themselves up that they were giving their allied brothers a chance to advance in the area. Yeah, essentially, they were like Aragorn charging the Black Gate to give Frodo time. Absolutely. To get the Ring to Mordor. Yeah, it was a diversion tactic. Yeah. And I don't know that we necessarily get a sense of that in this movie. You have an idea that they really just want to escape and go home, but they don't talk so much about it being more of a diversion tactic. Well, I, I think you see that in the character of Roger Bartlett. Played by Richard Attenborough. Sir Richard Attenborough. Who I didn't realize he is in Jurassic Park. You didn't realize that? I like, I don't know why. John Hammond from Jurassic Park? Yeah, man. Yeah. I was like, you look at him and he's so young in this movie. Yeah. But you can see it in his eyes that it's the same person. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. But like, I, I don't know. When he came on the screen, I saw it was Richard Attenborough. I was like, wait, isn't that the old dude from Jurassic That's him, Park? Man. Yeah. Wonderful. But you see that in his character. He is very focused on the war. Yeah. And I think that they use the other characters to maybe give a little more emotional, like, well, we're not just here to try and screw up the Nazis' plans. We're here to go home. We want to go home. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are so many directions we can go with this conversation because this movie is its one of those classic films that we don't get a lot of today where it's just a true ensemble film. Yeah. And this movie actually came out in 63, which was the same year that a uh, mega cast comedy came out. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Mad, 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 mad world is such a... Uh, I the, love... So I love The that. moment when the old man kicks the bucket <laughs> when he dies. Right. Joe no, just kills But you think time. about how huge both of these casts are. Yeah. And I feel like if you were working in Hollywood in that year, you were in one of those two films. Yeah. And we don't really get these sort of mega casts today. Do you know if there's anybody that was in both? Because they're sure they're there both was. major, major films. Yeah. I, you know what? I haven't looked into it, but hmm. there may have been some overlap. The funny thing is when I think about ensemble films... From like growing up, I think about like the late 2000s, early teens, like Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like those anthology films. Well, yeah, kind of where they followed a bunch of different people. And I never saw any of them. But sure. I remember like for like three or four years in a row, it felt like every year there was a really cheesy like rom-com ensemble cast yeah. that nobody wanted to see. I think the closest we're getting to that today is like the Oceans movies. Avengers. Well, obviously, Avengers yeah. is up there, too. And now it's just because they've made so many movies that they right. have to cram everyone in. Right. Well, but, and even little things like The Incredible Hulk, the contract that they have with, uh, I think, Universal owns his rights. Okay. They basically wrote into the contract that the Hulk is not allowed to have a standalone movie. Oh, and that's and, why he's And that's only, why he's only in Avengers movies and Ragnarok, which pretty much was another. Interesting. Yeah. So getting back to The Great Escape, though, you we know. were like, we're off on a tangent today. <laughs> You know, the thing that strikes me about this movie is it was only, what, 18 years after the end of World War II when yeah. this movie was made. I was even thinking that when I was thinking about how hard it would be to make a movie like this today, simply because the access to old equipment and like even the trains and the vehicles that they use, like it was a lot easier to get that stuff back then because it was only 20 years before. Yeah. Like, but one of the things that, that really strikes me is how willing people were to talk about these stories in the moment. You know, yeah. even during the war, you've right. got movies, you know, even like, like Casablanca, where the war is kind of like on the periphery, but there's Nazis yeah. in the time that Nazis were actually happening. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Actually, like we're going to be doing Casablanca in a few weeks. And I, I, I've seen that movie many times. And I was thinking about how, that movie came out in the middle of World War II. Yeah. And they were, like you said, they were talking about Nazis and addressing those issues. And I feel like in modern lens, we have such, and, and I, I'm saying this is a good thing, we have such a negative view of the Nazi regime and the Third Reich that sometimes it's hard to watch these movies that came out very close to it. And we wonder, like, how could you talk about them? Well, and I think that should be a challenge to our generation, because even if you look back to our parents or maybe a little older than our parents, the Vietnam War. Yeah. You know, they're making movies like Coming Home, like The Deer Hunter. You know, if you if years after the war, you get Apocalypse Now. Movies are being made about the Vietnam conflict while it's happening. Right. And I feel like 
you know, the past 10, 15 years, we've only had a few movies about the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a few, but we seem more hesitant to comment on the current moment than they did then. Do you think part of that's the fact that we don't have to go to a movie to comment about it? We can post on Facebook and Instagram and... It's a good point. So let's talk about the cast of this film because yeah. it is absolutely stacked from top to bottom. And part of the part of the thing is if you're listening to this and you're above the age of 45 to 50, you'll probably already know the whole cast. But for me and Bob watching this, I, I know some of the actors, but I don't know a lot of them. So, I mean, you've got your Steve McQueen. Right. Who has become legendary in his own right just yeah. by being Steve McQueen. You got Steve McQueen. You've got Sir Richard Attenborough. You've got James Garner. You've got Charles Bronson, James Coburn, Donald Pleasance, like up and down the list, people who went on to have long, illustrious film careers, and they're just kind of serving their role in the film. When Donald Pleasance runs into Richard Attenborough's leg and he reali- they realize that he's blind, yeah. I j- oh my gosh, dude, that about ripped my heart out. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to get into some of their, their character traits. Yeah. As we go, is there anybody that stuck out to you, you know, among the ensemble as really a standout performance? I loved Ives, the, oh, the Scottish dude. Yeah, he went by Archie, Archibald yeah. Ives, yeah. the Scottish dude. Do you know his actor's name? I don't. He, I didn't look him up. He, he, I mean, he wasn't super famous. Right. He really killed me, man. Dude, he tore his, my heart out. Because at the very start, he says, he's like, I, I'm kind of going wire crazy, which essentially means... I'm going to jump on the wire to commit suicide. Well, I thought what that meant was I'm going to make a run for the wires, you know, and see what happens. But to me, that felt like I know that I'm going to get killed. Exactly. Exactly. I don't want to be here anymore. Right. So, yeah. And as the movie goes on, you see that this ensemble of, of different prisoners of war from different countries are collaborating to build tunnels to get out of the POW camp. Right. And as they hit obstacles and snags, this guy, Archie, Ives, who's yeah. been trying to literally dig his way out with his bare hands, yep. he just he can't take it anymore. And yeah. He snaps. And the midway point of the film, where there really should be like an intermission, mm-hmm. is is the death of Archie because yeah. he he makes a run for the wire. There's a shift in the tone of the film. Yeah, it really is it, like the inciting, like you, you know, said, incident. It, it is a fun movie, and and you're super entertained. But halfway through the film, when that happens, yeah. Like that, like this is it's it, it wasn't a joke anymore. And it wasn't something that they were just kind of like, oh, well, we're just going to screw with the Nazis. And right. Like it became like a true like, no, this is serious. We're like we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So going through the cast, because if you haven't seen this movie, I mean, it sounds really simplistic. Um, but the way that the script is written, different obstacles are introduced at key points to keep you entertained and keep you mm-hmm. engaged. The The main guy when it comes to planning the escape um, is actually a guy whose last name is Ramsey in the, in the movie. Mm -hmm. He's a British officer. He walks with a cane and he can't really get, he's not going on the mission, but he's running things. Right. And the guy that he's a senior ranking officer. And the guy who's the mastermind behind it is, as you said, Richard Attenborough's Bartlett. Right. So Bartlett uh, has apparently been captured by the Gestapo at some point. And when we first see him, he's just been released from being tortured. Right. And throughout the film, uh, the knock against Bartlett is that he's basically become heartless and he's so uh, one track minded in pursuing this escape that he's not considering the lives he's putting at stake. And so you've got that dynamic up against guys who are seasoned experts at escaping from POW camps. And so you get this ragtag kind of team put together. Mm-hmm. It's not even really ragtag. They're like crack experts at what they're doing. Well, and the the German officer who's in charge of the camp says that at the very start. He says, look, you guys have been trying to escape from, you know, dozens of POW camps over the last few years. Yeah. We built this camp for you to put all of our rotten eggs in one basket so that we can keep an eye on all of you. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's either a really brilliant idea or a really terrible idea. It really is, though. Yeah. And they even said, like, we've used everything that we've learned about all of your escape attempts in the past to escape proof this place. Right. And and even little things like they're measuring the distance between the ground and the cabins to make sure that they're not disposing of dirt that they're From using digging for tunnels. a tunnel. Right. So, like, that, the Nazis really were doing everything they could to prevent them from escaping. Yeah. We, we can't destroy the dirt. We can't eat it. The only thing left to do is camouflage it. That's as far as my thinking takes me. Then they teach you promptness in the RN? 
You'll never believe it, but I think I have the solution. The problem is somehow to get rid of this tunnel dirt over the compound. Well, of course. Would you mind? Now, you fill these bags with the dirt from the tunnel. Then, wearing them inside your trousers, you wander out into the compound where you pull these strings in your pockets. Out come the pins. Eric, it's good. All you have to do is kick it in. Unless you're a complete fool, the ferrets will never see a thing. It's indecently brilliant. What do you think, Roger? Eh? We'll try it first thing tomorrow. I already have. It works. So Bartlett comes up with this idea to tunnel out. Right. And he comes up with such an elaborate, ambitious concept. Not only are they going to dig one tunnel, they're going to dig three tunnels simultaneously, just in case one of them gets discovered or two of them get discovered. They have to dig each tunnel about 300, 350 feet yeah. to get out of the camp to and- a a, a wooded area where they can that, escape 30 feet down. Right. That is so far. Yeah. And then on top of that, they wanted to break 250 men out of the camp. And beyond all of that, they had to forge documents, right? Like passports. And they had to teach people a little bit of German or French or something that would help them get through customs, things like that. So that when they escaped, they could not only escape, get out. Yeah. yeah. Get out of the country, escape to Switzerland or Spain. I, the movie is, it's laid out perfectly. And I want to talk about the writing for a second, because this script, it's not just your typical action movie script. It's witty. There's some lines of dialogue. You really start to understand who each of these characters are, which is difficult with a cast this big. One of my favorite characters in the movie was James Garner, mm-hmm. who basically plays the scrounger. Like he gets stuff for guys in the camp. Is he the tall, handsome one that yes. tries to like seduce the ferret? Where, yeah. Where's the turtleneck? You know? Yeah. And he has this great line of dialogue where the guy that they call the ferret, who's basically a Nazi officer, um, who's making sure that. Uh, I don't think he was an officer. I think he was just like a regular. old. OK, guard. so he's he's a Nazi soldier <laughs> to the Russian front. That's right. <laughs> and his job is to make sure that no one's tunneling. Right. And you're right. James Garner takes it on himself to kind of get this guy in his good graces. Mm-hmm. But even then, even when he's trying to charm this Nazi, uh he won't let his American arrogance kind of get out of the way. Like yeah. he's talking to the Nazi and they said they decide they figure out that they're both in the Boy Scouts. They were in the Boy Scouts yeah. growing up. And the Nazi says like, oh, yeah, I had 19 merit badges. I had 20. <laughs> I had 20. He just has to one up him, you yeah. know. And that's what I love about this script is you get these really interesting, witty comments that are made. But then you also get just enough plan just enough detail about this escape laid out for you that it keeps you hooked. Yeah, I the the crazy thing for me about this movie, it's two hours and 52 minutes long, and I was never once bored. The, the action moves quickly, the pace is good, and the thing is you still get the feel of the 60s movies that, I don't know, have you ever seen Bullet with Steve McQueen? Oh yeah, with the big chase scene. Yeah, it, it's like the very first car chase yeah. scene. It's a famous movie. I remember watching that movie and thinking to myself, like, other than the car chase scene, it's a really slow-moving movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about a lot of 60s movies, that they're kind of awkwardly slow at points. And I think there's a few points in The Great Escape where you get those shots, where it's just like a slow shot of a train rolling by. Sure. But I never got bored with it. I never got annoyed by those things. There's something about this movie that I, I just enjoyed it thoroughly from start to finish. Well, and that... You have to chalk it up to the writing and to the direction. John Sturgis, what he does in this movie, I mean, to take on a task of making this film this monumentally big and to make it so intimate, it's a director's job to make sure the audience knows where they are at all times. So we've talked about this with some action films that that we've discussed on the podcast. Geography is everything. Yes. And you know where you're at in this camp at every moment of the film because they keep returning to familiar places when they're inside of somebody's room, you know, in the barracks, they always film it from the same angle so that you know exactly where everything is. And it's laid out in such a way that as an audience member, you're sucked into it. You understand the dynamics, you know, every inch of how far they have to dig so that when they get down in the tunnel to make the escape, you're you're all in. And it is that escape sequence is so suspenseful. Even the way that they film the tunnels and how you see them 
leaving the one area on that little cart yep. and arriving at a middle area and then going to another middle area and then getting to the end. Right. You realize, and and I think the most brilliant thing about the tunnel is their heads are scraping the top of the tunnel while they're rolling along that little cart. Yeah. And it feels so claustrophobic. And then in order to add to that feeling of claustrophobia, they give a character the fear of claustrophobia that you really care about and love. And and he, I love, uh, what's his, his Danny? name? Is Danny. Yeah. yeah. Danny from the very start when he grabs the three cigarettes and gives them to the Russian soldier and like tries to escape with the Russians. Yeah. I, Danny was one of my favorite. Characters. Oh, they were great. And, and this is what brings me back to the script because in movies like this, we don't often talk about how brilliant the writing is, but from a story perspective, I think if you were going to teach someone screenwriting, this is a script you need to hand them because at every point where you need something to complicate the plot, something comes in and it doesn't feel forced. It always seems like a natural development. Yeah. And and like you said, the way that they film all the scenes from the same angle and so on and so forth, it gives so much more suspense. Yeah. I'm thinking of the scene when the Nazis find the first tunnel. Yeah. Which causes Ives to jump at the like. So let's let's go in on this a little bit because it comes at almost the halfway point of the film. So you've had an hour and a half to get used to Steve McQueen's character, this kind of cocky American. You know, the Scotsman Ives, you know, the plan that's in place that Bartlett, you know, Richard Attenborough's put in place. You've seen uh, James Garner seducing the (laughs) the, the Nazis, right? (laughs) And, they're about to be done digging the first tunnel, Tom. Right. They're almost there. And they had said, since we're making such good progress on Tom, we're going to kind of abandon the other two for now and focus everything on Tom. And it's the 4th of July, and you get this great mashup, basically, of two different moods, two different sequences happening at the same time. So Steve McQueen and James Garner and another American, there's only three Americans in the whole camp, they throw this big revolutionary war bash where they've made moonshine, which is another scene we have to talk about. That's hilarious. The, the making of the moonshine. Yes. Is great. And they're just giving the whole camp moonshine. And the, the Nazis are letting them have their fun. Right. And while they're partying in the middle of the camp, they discover the tunnel, Tom. And so you've got this incredibly suspenseful sequence of the Nazis finding this tunnel juxtaposed against this, you know, really happy party. You finally get some relief from the tension and then it culminates in everyone being dejected and Archie Ives finally reaching his breaking point. Yeah, I that scene, we've already said that it's the turning point of the movie, but there's something about that scene that, like you said, there's so much humor wrapped up in the opening part of that scene with them talking about the moonshine. And I believe the scene where they're testing the moonshine in the room is right before that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that scene alone is perfect comedy. Like, oh, yeah. There's not much said. It's mostly physical. It's perfect. Yep. But you get into the Revolutionary War, Fourth of July. They're all laughing. And as I'm sure that moonshine sours on you after a little bit, <laughs> the scene moves from being awesome and it and it's tasteful and funny to, oh, oh my gosh. And you get that pit in your stomach yeah. of like, oh, oh are they going to find is, it? Yeah. And then I love the scene with Richard. I I think that's one of the things I love about the writing is that as for me, as the Nazis are in the room, you're like, oh, my gosh, are they going to find the 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 tunnel? Yeah. And then they shoot over to Richard and somebody tells, uh, you know, Bartlett, hey, like they're in room 105. And and in my head, I was like, oh, don't go there, because if you go there, they're going to know that something's up with that room. And then he says that. And to me, those are little things of writing. Yep. That are so smart that that they they stay in line with how smart of a person he was that it, it's just such good writing. It is. And again, I can't say enough that when something needs to come in and complicate the plot, it does. And it happens every single time. So in the sequence, you know, after the midway point where they decide it's time to do this tonight, they find out the tunnel's not long enough. So mm-hmm. that adds tension and suspense because every time someone comes up out of the tunnel, they have to covertly run about 25 feet to get into the woods that they were supposed to already be in. But then you've got the character of Danny played by Charles Bronson, Charles Bronson. And Danny reveals that he has claustrophobia. And that seems like kind of a gimmick at first, but they milk it so well because his claustrophobia more than once threatens to ruin everything. It derails the entire, it really does. And then they had this brilliant sequence where in the middle of the escape, there's an air raid 
and all of the lights in the camp go out, which means all the electricity that they've been wiring down to the tunnel goes out. And it happens when Danny, the claustrophobic is one, in the is the in the tunnel. And it's this brilliant piece of writing, but it's also the direction because the screen goes pitch black. And for the whole escape sequence, there's no music. Right. And you are on the edge of your seat watching a black screen, not knowing what's going to happen next. I think that illustrates another part of this movie that is extremely strong is how they kind of paired together a lot of characters. Um, I'm thinking of Henley, the scrounger, uh, who put James, James Garner, James Garner and Donald Pleasance. Yeah. 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 That like they're paired together and Danny and the British guy are paired together. And I, I think there's certain pairings of people that really help illustrate the relationships that they're building and how they refuse to leave the camp without their friend that they've built yeah. throughout the movie. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways that the writing helps establish relationships that you care about. Absolutely. So can I talk for a second about how I, I'm going to compare this movie with another one to illustrate how well The Great Escape was done? Okay. So Star Wars Rogue One, I think, is a very similar movie in the fact that it's kind of in two acts where the first part of The Great Escape and Rogue One are built to help you get to know the characters. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of the movie is an action sequence where you see the characters that you've fallen in love with die and and go through all these different things, right? And I think the problem is, in Rogue One, you just don't care about the characters. There's nothing that builds a relationship with them where you really care about them. Yeah which leaves the action sequence in the second half kind of feeling void where you're just kind of like, I feel like the director wants me to feel something for these characters, but I don't at all because you didn't spend the time building them up as people that you can relate to, that you can care about. Whereas in The Great Escape, these are men that you can relate to, that you feel for, that that you're invested in their cause. And I think part of that goes back to when you look at action movies – of today, and even going back a couple decades, mm-hmm. I think one of the hallmarks of the action film now, including Star Wars, you know, you watch a James Bond movie and he goes to seven different countries. Right. And they they ocean hop and, you know, they're in Shanghai and then they're in Berlin and then and you just get a title card and there's no sense of direction. There's no sense of geography. It's just to to show, you know, the budget, basically, like right. look how many places we filmed. Right. And it's the same thing with Star Wars. And I don't want to say it's a knock against Star Wars because George Lucas created all these cool worlds. But especially like in Rogue One, they're going from planet to planet to planet to planet. The benefit of this movie is that you're in one location for two hours. Right. And you get to learn every nook and cranny of that place. But that also gives the screenwriter time to develop each one of these characters and the relationships between them because they don't have to worry about, okay, now they're at the Champs-Élysées. You know what I mean? Right. So. Yeah. And and the thing with the location is – it almost makes you feel that kind of a oppressed claustrophobia of being stuck in one location and wanting to escape. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you want to see what's outside those woods as well. Yeah. There, so there's something brilliant about that staying in one location. Like you said, the geography of the movie is so well done right. that it causes you to want to escape with the prisoners. So here's my hot take. And before we pause to drink some whiskey and I'll tease it a little bit. The last third of this movie is the most famous part of this film. And I read a lot of reviews from the time it was released that didn't really like the movie that much. And they said, but the last third is worth it. Okay. I think the last third is the worst part of the movie. The Like the escape? Post-escape. Post-escape. It's a a long sequence. And I think it loses something because you're no longer in that tense, claustrophobic environment. And all of a sudden they're walking through these vistas of mountains and things like that. And it just doesn't keep the tension the way that it should, even as the Nazis are tracking each of them down. Brad's hot take. Bob is wrong about everything he just said. Well, good. Let's press, let's press pause on this because I want to come back and argue with you. Once but we've had some whiskey. I was going to say, in order to argue better, <laughs> why don't we crack open this nice scotch? We're going to be looking at a Glenmorangie La Santa. Brad, what do you say we try it? All right, so today we are checking out Glenmorangie La Santa. Now, this is a 12-year-old scotch. So, uh, Glenmorangie does their 10-year scotch. They mature it in bourbon barrels, and then they finish it off in these sherry casks. Now, we are... I know, right? Yeah. Which is, I mean, 
This is something that a lot of scotches and Irish whiskeys have started doing. They'll they'll take their product and then they'll finish them in Oloroso uh, sherry casks. Now, I don't drink sherry. Brad, have you ever had sherry? No. So I have no idea what kind of things this will impart. But we have had the standard Glenmorangie 10. So we're adding two years of aging to the process. However... It does seem that they water it down a little bit. I like that you said we're adding two years of aging in the process. Like, oh, yes, add a pinch of salt, <laughs> a pinch of a little years. garlic butter. <laughs> Throw two more years in there. <laughs> so the original Glenmorangie uh, is 46% alcohol. 46 years old? 46 years old. Wow. 46% alcohol. But this is actually put in the bottle at 43%, which means they water it down a bit when it comes okay. out, of the, out of the cask. So we're looking at an 86 proof Scotch. Yeah. So if you didn't know, whenever you distill liquors, they come out at about 120 to 130 proof, if not higher. And in order to bring the proof down, they literally just add water. Yeah, they just got to water it down. And so so anytime you get a lower proof uh, whiskey or bourbon or whatever, it, it they've just added a little bit more water to it to kind of hide the bite. I guess. Yeah, to uh, appeal to guys like me and Brad who are not used to drinking scotch. Yeah. So, Brad, what are you getting on the nose of this one? Scotch? Yeah, it smells like a scotch. (laughs) However, I will say that it has these sort of more bright, like, fruity notes to it. Yeah. It doesn't have that deep sort of uh, moonshiny, (laughs) like, scent to it. You know what I mean? It doesn't smell quite as smoky or earthy. I was thinking that. The monkey shoulder that we had a little while back, I think it was a little more smoky on the nose. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, this does kind of have some floral scents to it. Almost like a lavender. I don't know. I'm enjoying the smell a lot. I just went ahead and took a taste of it. Why don't we take a taste and see what we think of it? Ooh, there's the smoke. That's smooth drinking, though, man. It's really smooth. I can't tell if I would say that it's smooth or if it's just watered down. I don't know if that makes sense. It still has flavor. It's a much brighter scotch than the Glenmorangie 10. Yeah. It doesn't have, like, like dark uh, chocolatey or butterscotch notes to it. It really is very fruity, very floral. Um, and in that way, it's kind of closer to, like, what I would consider an Irish whiskey to taste like. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the Tullamore Dew yeah. that we had. Yeah, but just with that that characteristic it doesn't smokiness. Have the, it doesn't have the E added into it. Exactly. You, you can really taste the difference. That's right. There. The absence <laughs> of E. Brad, what else are you picking up on the taste? Uh I mean, I guess this is more finished, but the smokiness, I think, is a little bit more forward, but not as overall strong. Like I, yeah. like with other scotches that I've had, you don't taste the smokiness right away, but it hits you as it finishes mm-hmm. and as you're breathing mm-hmm. afterwards. This one, I feel like I can taste the smokiness right away, but it's smooth throughout. I guess it's more balanced. Yeah, definitely. And again, I am struggling to decide whether this is just really smooth or if it's just a less potent whiskey. Well, and... Is, the, is that the same thing, though? I don't think it is because, you know, my favorite whiskey on a special occasion is Old Forester Prohibition era. And that is like an 118 proof. OK. I mean, it packs a punch, but it's real. I mean, I'm going to use my 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 go to word here. It's really viscous. It's a really thick bourbon. But for being 118 proof, it just goes down so smooth. And this one, like it goes down smooth, but it's also a much thinner feel in your mouth as well. The word viscous is about as useful as the movie Goodfellas. We, we, we need to trademark viscous. Can we, <laughs> viscous TM. If there's any lawyers out there listening, please uh, contact us and let us know how we can trademark the word. The word viscous. viscous. That's right. <laughs> on the finish, uh, this actually does have quite a lingering finish, but it's not bitter at all. No, it sits on your palate for a while. You start to get the peat, uh, the trademark scotch. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sits really well on the palate. I. I'm, re- I'm really enjoying this I like a lot. this a lot, Brad. Yeah. And then uh, overall balance, we've we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, it's a thinner mouthfeel. Yeah. It's definitely been watered down. But if you're not into scotch, I would say this is like the gateway drug into scotch. Just yeah. like Monkey Shoulder provided some of those darker, more smoky notes. This is like all fruit and flowers, and it's just very light. Yeah, it's different than you would expect from what I have heard about scotch. It, and I think it is kind of what you said. It is watered down a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think that's an okay thing. Yeah, definitely. So let, let's score it out then. Well, before we do that, we, we <laughs> have... Fine then. We don't have to score it out, Bob. <laughs> we have heard some feedback that scoring our whiskeys out of 40 doesn't make a lot of sense because it's kind of hard to convert that number in your head. Like, what's a 23 out of 40? You have to multiply it by two and a half just to make sense of it out of 100. 
And so Brad and I have decided that what we're going to start doing is we're going to introduce a fifth category. Now, right now we do nose, taste, finish, and balance. We want to add a value category. We've talked about how with some of these bourbons, especially, we paid a lot of money for that bourbon. And for what we paid, it wasn't great. The two examples being... Makers 46 and Basil Hayden. Basil Hayden's. We paid a lot of money for them and they were very average. The problem is they were still, exactly, they were average bourbons. But I think that we took some out of it. Like we took it out on the balance and the nose and the taste. Right. When we, we lowered the scores. Been, right. When we should have been taking it out on its overall value. Right. Now, I do think you can buy a very high end whiskey. And if it's just a darn good whiskey, it's absolute. That's a 10 right. out of 10 good in value. value. But, you know, for the $9 bottle of Heaven Hill Green Label we had, that's the best value. I've, it right. doesn't mean it has to be cheap. It just has to be worth the money. 11 out of 10. Exactly. <laughs> so we're going to score this out of 50 from now on. So you no longer have to convert from 40. So, Brad, on the nose, I would give this a 7. This is quite good. I was going to give it a 8. An 8? Okay, yeah. so I'm at a 7. Brad's at an 8. Taste, again, it's it's thinner, um, but that... I don't necessarily hold that against it. I really liked this a whole lot. Right. Um, I would go, I'd be consistent and give it a seven. I'm going to give it a seven as well. The, the taste was good. It didn't quite hold up with what I was smelling mm-hmm. at the start. Now, when it comes to the finish, this might be one of the best finishes we've had on a whiskey yet. It lingers. It doesn't disappear. But what remains is the sweetness. It's right. not the smoke. It's not the bitter qualities. Right. It's just this really pleasant, drinkable experience. I'm going to give this a nine on the finish. I was going to say the same thing. Nine out of nine. Th- this, this, this is, is going to be pretty high. This is already shaping up to be yeah, I like a, this one a, lot. a good one. Overall balance, I do think it was quite balanced. Again, I still go back and forth on... Is it balanced just because it's watery or is it balanced just because it's a good drinkable whiskey? Um, I'm going to give it an eight on balance. Well, and the question is, let's say that they hadn't watered it down. Yeah. It might not. It wouldn't have the same balance. Sure. And so for me, I I don't know. I feel like you're saying it, they watered it down a little bit as if it's a bad thing. Right. But I'm like, if it, if that's what it took to bring it to a drinkable and not just drinkable, but a, an exciting, good whiskey. Yeah. Hey, water it down all you want. So what would you give it on the... Overall balance. Nine. Nine. What did you give it? I gave it an eight. An eight. Yeah. And then our new category is value. Now, for a fifth of this, it's going to set you back about 50 bucks. Ooh. Yeah. So what Brad and I did, if you remember from our Glenmore G10 episode, we bought a sampler. And it comes with four 100 uh, milliliter bottles in it uh, with the original, the La Santa, and then two more. And I only paid 25 bucks for the sampler which I already feel like is shaping up to be a great value. But we're not talking about samplers. We're talking about if you wanted to go to the liquor store and buy a bottle of this, it's coming in a fifth and it's going to be $50. Yeah. Which to me, I don't know if I'd pay 50 bucks for this. However, regular Glenmorangie is like 40 bucks. Okay. So for $10 more, if you're already thinking about getting a scotch, you're not getting a single malt scotch whiskey that's good quality for pretty much under 35 or 40 bucks anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I recently had Oban 18, mm-hmm. which apparently is like a 100 to $120 sure. bottle. And it was better than this. But for $50, I would actually say that's a pretty good value. Yeah. I don't like to spend $50 on a bottle unless I know I'm going to be impressed. And I'm fairly impressed with this. So in, in terms of value, I think I'd give it a 7. I, I'm going to give it an 8. Just based on, like I said, having that Oban 18, which was really good. And yeah. I really enjoyed it a lot. But where I'm at in life, I don't know if I could spend $120 on a bottle. Right. But I could spend 50 on something I really enjoy. Sure. So my final score is a 38 out of 50. Brad, what do you come out to? Um, I am coming out to... 41. 41. 38 and 41. Yeah. So we're coming out to about an average of a 40 out of 50. Yeah. This is a darn good whiskey. Yeah. Uh, one of the more drinkable ones we've had is... Uh, I wouldn't sit down with this and nurse it for a half hour. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that I would like to drink on my front porch on a summer day and feel fancy while I'm doing it. <laughs> but it's a heck of a lot better than whatever they made moonshine wise in The Great Escape. Yeah, I man, that scene just killed me. Well, but, why don't we talk about it, Brad? Let's get back into talking about The Great Escape. So 
So that was Glenn Morangie La Santa. I am still sipping on it because it was really, really good. Yeah, I was highly impressed. I drank it all because it was really, really good. <laughs> you drank every bit of it. <laughs> Let's get back into talking about The Great Escape. Now, we, we left on a sort of sour note where I said that I honestly think that the film kind of tapers off a bit in that final sequence where everyone's out of the camp and trying to get to Spain or wherever they're going. Yeah. So the thing for me is one of the greatest parts about this film is the suspense aspect of it. When they are trying to escape, I I don't know the last film I've seen that has made my gut just, oh, it just churns. Yeah. The way in which this movie does. Sure. And so for me, that feeling continues with the escape while they're trying to get on the train and the police are on and they're, you know. Uh, Henley and the forger guy are in the airplane and they're trying to escape like that tension stayed in my gut the entire way wanting them to get away. Yeah. Oh, I totally wanted them to get away. I thought the most suspenseful part of that whole thing was the train sequence where like three or four of our characters are on that train and then they go their separate way. Some of them jump off the train. Um, I really wanted to see more of the James Garner and Donald Pleasance relationship because that too. was the more the most sentimental one and the one where you were most concerned because Donald Pleasance's character develops a degenerative like eye disease. He, right. He's going blind basically. Glaucoma. Type yeah, of exactly. Yeah, and you know that it's going to be hardest to get him out of there. Right. And and still James Garner's character volunteers to take him. And here's where I end up on the whole thing. Uh, most of these guys end up getting rounded up. And uh, eventually, most of them get rounded up. Right. And they're getting transported to what they're told is a new camp. And the surprise of the film is that they all get pulled over on the side of the road. And the Nazis are so cruel, they tell them to get out and stretch their legs. And then they machine gun them all. Right. And we lose, like, 50% of our cast in, in a really, really sleep. abrupt way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that decision. I mean, I'm sure it was historically accurate to do it that way. Uh, but... There's no the thing about this movie is that there's there's not a lot of sentimentalizing things like you don't have a lot of time to grieve these people or mourn them. It's just on to the next scene. Yeah. And I don't know if it had the payoff that I wanted it to have Mm. after two plus hours of investing in these characters. I don't know when the when the commanding officer of the POWs, the British guy with the cane. Yep. When he's reading off the names. That was just brutal for me. Yeah, yeah. I I thought that moment was the payoff of, like, these men truly did sacrifice their lives for what they believed Absolutely. So I want to play a little game here, Brad, with the remaining few minutes that we have. I don't usually do this with movies, especially classics. Yeah. But as I was watching this, I was thinking about the fact that we don't get these cool ensemble movies anymore unless they're superhero movies. Right. And I was thinking to myself, what would it look like? If they remade The Great Escape and who would play each character. (laughs) And I want to get your opinion because I really sat down and thought long and hard about it. So I want to start with the character of Ramsey. Now, this was the British officer who was in charge of the whole thing that walked with a cane. Okay. Okay. You need someone that can keep his composure. And I liked the way his face looked. And it reminded me of two people. Okay. Number one, Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Or I thought this would have been a really good role for Ben Mendelsohn. Who is Ben Mendelsohn? He played the villain in Rogue One, which you mentioned earlier. He was on the the TV show Bloodline. Oh, the like the commander. With, yes. Okay. I thought that would have been a great role for him. Yeah. So that's Ramsey. I think that... I think Ben Mendelsohn also could have continued his villain role and played the German... He could play anybody. I really like him. I think yeah. he's an underrated actor. Yeah. Bartlett? That I was thinking about that. Bartlett is an interesting character. You need somebody who's fiery. You know what I mean? But but keeps his composure, too. Yeah. And, and can can lead, but can also uh, internalize the things that have happened to him. Here's yeah. my Bartlett. You ready for it? Okay. Ewan McGregor. Ooh. <laughs> he could play Sir Richard Attenborough. He's already played Sir Alec Guinness. Yeah. He could play Sir Richard Attenborough. I yeah. want Ewan McGregor in The Great Escape. Make it happen, Hollywood. Right now. James Garner's character, Hendley. This is the hardest one for me. Here's the thing, is that everyone that I thought of is too old. Okay. And they don't make people like James Garner anymore. Yeah. I look back on guys like James Garner, and this is serious. Like, as if there's a factory where they just make Hollywood <laughs> Make James <stars>. Garners. <laughs> he comes from an era where he's not the most masculine guy. What are you but, talking about? But guys were just more masculine then, if that makes sense. Like, there are other people in this movie who I think are more masculine than James Garner. 
if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. But even like the pretty boys, the charmers, right, are more masculine than today's movie stars. Yeah. This would have been a fantastic George Clooney role. Yeah. And I can't think of anyone today who can do the sort because of, for a while he was doing like a Jack Lemony yeah. kind of like comedic performance, I was but say, also a heartthrob. Along those lines, do you think if he, if he wasn't fully himself like a Mark Wahlberg? Oh, that's an interesting one. I don't know if I'd go Wahlberg or if I'd go Chris Pratt. Oh, I don't know if Chris Pratt could pull that off. You'll hear Chris Pratt come up again because he's, he's I can't think of go- where to place him. He's too goofy. That's my problem with Chris yeah. Pratt because because James Garner has a smoothness to him that yeah. Chris Pratt doesn't have, and that's and and Wahlberg doesn't have that smoothness either. Uh-huh. But he's closer to it than Chris Pratt would. Sure, be. I'm just trying to think of another actor that we can plug in there. I think Wahlberg's probably closer to it. Yeah, I don't think Gyllenhaal pulls this role off as much as I like Gyllenhaal. Maybe like a Matt Damon. I could see a Matt Damon. Yeah, let's say Matt Damon. Okay, all right, just just for the sake of argument. Yeah, Charles Bronson's character of Danny. My first person that I thought of was Tom Hardy. Oh, but I don't yeah. think Tom Hardy can do it because Tom Hardy's too big to fit in the tunnel. This is this is a logistical problem. <laughs> well, I don't think Tom Hardy is always going to be Bane Tom Hardy, where he's just like jacked out of his mind. Here's who I landed on. Okay. The only person who can pull off that ridiculous accent and is still kind of slim enough to fit in the tunnel. Yeah. Christian Bale. I, I could see that. I want Christian Bale in that role. Yeah. Uh, James Coburn's character, the Australian, who does the really bad Australian accent, the tall, lanky, goofy looking guy. That's really hard for me because James Coburn is perfect in that role. I want you to think about who is a really tall, lanky, awkward looking guy in Hollywood right now. Matthew McConaughey. No, even better. Adam Driver. No. Oh, I want him in that role so bad. No. I want Kylo Ren in that role, Brad. He would be perfect for that role. I don't know, man. He's perfect for it. Adam Driver. All right, let's move on. No, actually, you know what? I am going to recant everything I just said yeah. because for some reason, when you said Adam driver, my mind jumped to Adam Scott. No, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want Ben Wyatt in this movie in <laughs> and, any role. And that exactly. I had the same response where I was like, Adam Scott. No, I want no, wait, Kylo Ren. Adam driver. I could see in that role. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Donald Pleasance's role, the blind guy. So that's, that's one that I've been thinking about. Uh, he's so soft spoken. The dude for, he's in a lot of movies. Uh, the two that I'm thinking of, is Pride and Prejudice. He's the cousin that's like trying to flirt with Hugh Grant? No, 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 no not Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant would have been good in that role though. Tom Hollander. Oh yeah, he would be good in this. Oh, he'd be really Wouldn't good in this role. Wouldn't he be a good Donald Pleasance? So now I've got like 5 people who would be good in this role because we've talked <laughs> I think so let me let me round out the Donald Pleasance options. Okay. So we've got Tom Hollander. I wrote down two. One of them's too old. The two okay. old one would be Rafe Fiennes, who I think would be phenomenal. Oh, Voldemort? Yes. Oh, he'd be really good. You know, I don't know if I've seen him in roles outside of Voldemort, so I can't oh. agree or disagree. Oh, well, with we'll him. get to a few of them. I've the heard podcast. he's a gr- like oh, genuinely a great actor. actor. And then the other one who I think would be great, our friend Bilbo Baggins, Martin Freeman. Martin, yeah, Martin Freeman takes. He, the cake. he gets the role. Yeah. All right, and then the most fun one and the most obvious one, the role of Archie Ives, goes to our friend Simon Pegg. From Shaun of the Dead and Mission Impossible. <laughs> there's no question. There's not. I mean, there's not even anybody yeah. else in contention for it. You know what? I think Tom Cruise has a role in this movie somewhere. Tom Cruise could be Steve McQueen if we want him to. Oh, yeah, for sure. But Tom Cruise is also almost 60 years old. But instead of riding a motorcycle, he would just be <laughs> he just r- runs through the barbed wire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Brad. So we're already running long and this has been a weird episode. But yeah. It, it was worth it for The Great Escape. This is, you know, if I could speak in, in outdated terms, like this is a man movie. Yeah. Like this is the kind of movie that you expect your dad yeah. to be watching on AMC on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. I mean, that, this is one of those movies that like at the very start of the podcast, we talked about how we got into films in general. Mm-hmm. The Great Escape is one of those films that I watched with my dad when I was in like middle school or high school that helped me fall in love with movies. Yeah. And so this is one of those movies that uh, you just can't ignore when you look at film history. Yep. It's brilliant. Yep. It's well-written. Like you said, the filmography, how they film each scene genuinely brings across what you're trying to depict, whether it's the claustrophobia of the tunnel or the importance of Room 105 where where they're, you know, building uh, Tom or Dick or Harry. The movie does so many things well 
that you just can't ignore it. It's so good. Yeah. I, I said this the other day. It's it's a classic with the capital C. Yeah. This is one of those films that that draws you into the beauty of filmmaking, and you you can't ignore it. Brad, what kind of a score would you give this movie? Nine and a half. I would also give it a nine and a half. I think yeah. that it really does drag a little bit in that third act. See, for me, there's a few parts in the opening part of the film that drag a little bit before you're falling in love with the characters. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the final third, so you're crazy. I mean, it's, it's still a great movie. Yeah. We're talking about a 95 yeah. out of 100. Like, yeah. it, it's a great film. But we want to hear what your thoughts are. As always, please reach out to us on social media. Brad, what's our Instagram handle? At Film Whiskey. Whiskey with an E? Whiskey with an E. With an E. What's our Twitter handle? At Film Whiskey with an E. <laughs> all, all of that. Right. We're also <laughs> on Facebook, Film and Whiskey Podcast. Or you could call our call-in line and leave a voicemail. The number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that is 216-800-5923. So, and I just want to say, like, this is still a new podcast. If you guys are enjoying what we're putting out there, share it with your friends, share it with your family. The other day, like, my mom and dad, I don't think would enjoy this podcast. I didn't think it going into it. And my mom called me and she was like, you know, we're actually really enjoying this podcast. It's a really good time. <laughs> this is a lot better than we expected from you, son. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> it's it's amazing to me how people are enjoying this podcast. We're just two normal dudes that just want to do this for fun. Yeah. And we're getting some great feedback. So, please continue to, to share with your friends. Give us a, a positive review on iTunes if you can. We will be back next week talking about maybe my favorite film of all time. Wow. 1942's Casablanca. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. The the music in this movie so good. All right, phenomenal. We gotta actually start though. This isn't the start.